are going to be in Mark chapter 12 uh, this morning. Oh, and the kids, you guys are dismissed. I think you're going out with teacher Caleb and then Pastor Chris is taking the youth. Youth, if you're looking to get out of here, now's your opportunity to make your escape. You can head out with Pastor Chris and uh, everybody else. Like I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning, uh, just raise your hand and we have Bibles that you can borrow or Bibles that you can take home if you'd prefer, and just raise your hand and somebody will bring you one of those. Um, as, uh, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, we had kind of a, a leadership, uh, servant leader training thing scheduled for this afternoon. It was a quip, and I was really looking forward to it. We were going to kind of really talk, not nuts and bolts, but talk about kind of the heart behind the ministry here or the heart that we hope to see in the ministry here. Um, and unfortunately, as you can hear, there's a frog that will not leave my throat. So I just wasn't sure I had another meeting in me. Well, I'm not even sure. We might get out of here early today. And uh, I might be signing the last half of uh, the message, which would work great if I knew sign language. So you're just going to have to bear with me in this this morning. And um, so let's pray and just ask that the Lord would, uh, would bless his word. And again, just hope us to be focused on what he has to speak to us today in the midst of everything else that's, um, that's happening. So Father, we do thank you for uh, this opportunity that we have. Lord, we thank you for the safety that we enjoy here, the ability that we have to come and to sit Lord, unconcerned, Lord, we know that you are here with us, Lord, that you're watching over us, Lord, just as we know that you're with your people in Israel, Lord, and that you're watching over them, protecting them. Lord, we do pray for wisdom for their leaders, Lord. We pray uh, for your gracious hand over everyone that's involved in, in pushing back this, um, this attack, Lord, and we, we pray that you would be somehow glorified in the midst of of even these things. And Father, we pray as we go to your word this morning that you'd speak to us. Lord, give us open hearts and open ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning, Lord, as your church. And so we pray your blessing on this time, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we're picking up this morning. We'll start off in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. Of course, Mark's account of now what is this final week of the earthly life and the earthly ministry of Jesus. The, the cross is just days away at this point, as he, of course, will go to give his life uh, for the forgiveness of our sins. So it's Tuesday of the Passion Week, and we remember that G Jesus entered into the holy city of Jerusalem on that Sunday, and then uh, on that Monday he came back in and he cleansed the temple, you remember that, and then he returned back to the temple courts on Tuesday morning. And remember that his popularity now amongst the common people is absolutely soaring, and it's just sort of growing exponentially by the day, but all of that popularity is coming, we've said, at the expense of the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And so it's these men who confront him now in the temple, right? These men, part of the Sanhedrin, which was the, the ruling body of the, the religious Jewish establishment there. It was made up, we said, of three groups. There were the Pharisees, which were kind of the, the Orthodox. There were the Sadducees, which was the, the liberal uh, religious guys. And then the Herodians, which were really sort of a, a political party. And the, the, these three groups sort of came at Jesus, we've seen in this kind of a three-pronged attempt to really divide and conquer. And they're trying to interrupt him and, and trying to entrap him as he taught there in the temple courts. And they're bringing in this series of these loaded questions. And these are the most controversial questions that were floating around amongst God people in those days. And these were these questions that had already pretty evenly divided the Jews in that time. And so these leaders are bringing these controversial questions to Jesus in the hopes that no matter what position he might take, that it will alienate at least half of his followers and it will begin to kind of curb or, or, or to put a dent in this rising popularity. And so we saw that it was first the Herodians that came, right? This sort of a political party within the Sanhedrin. They were the ones that were loyal to Herod. They were, they were in support of Rome. And so they brought this kind of what we said was a political 
puzzler about whether or not the Jews should be paying taxes to Caesar. Then next up to the plate, last week we looked at the Sadducees. Of course, we said the religious liberals of the day, they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe there was even an afterlife. So they came with this kind of a doctrinal dilemma or really what was really more of a theological trap and they were just trying to kind of poke fun at or poke holes in the whole idea of the resurrection in particular and of the supernatural in general. And, and so far, we've seen in each case, Jesus very easily answers them with this wisdom that is so far beyond them and just reveals their hearts and their hypocrisy uh, right in front of this multitude of these people that are looking on, right? So group after group, he's just sort of dismissing them with his answers. And now finally, in our text today, here in this series of kind of these oral exams that Jesus is being put through, we're going to see the third group with this third question, which we're going to see is kind of an ethical dilemma. Or what it really is, is it's an ethical entrapment, if you will, about the law. Now, it's, it's Matthew, sort of more so than Mark. Matthew very specifically identifies this group for us. In Matthew 21, he says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Right, so here they are watching what had just happened. So the Pharisees very quickly, they get together for another huddle to hatch yet another plan. No doubt the Pharisees really enjoyed seeing their rivals, the Sadducees, kind of publicly embarrassed and dismissed. But now they knew it was their turn to try their hand. Remember, the Pharisees were, they were really kind of a mixed, kind of a religious and political party, right? Religiously, they were the legalists, right? They, they were the ones who always majored in the minors of the law. But politically, they were very active, very strong views. They wanted to see the kingdom of David brought back into power. They very much wanted to rid themselves of Rome. So here the Herodians had failed with their political puzzler. The Sadducees had failed with their doctrinal dilemma. So now the Pharisees, we're going to see, they bring out one of their big guns to try to catch Jesus in this ethical entrapment, right? Which we're going to see Jesus very easily answers for them. And it really gives to them and, and it really gives to us what I think is heaven's real insight on not only the essence of the law, but really the essence of life itself. And so we pick up now with Mark's account, verse 28. It says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well. Now, the scribes were a group of religious scholars kind of within the greater group of the Pharisees. So not all Pharisees were scribes, but all the scribes probably would have been considered to be Pharisees. The scribes were kind of a special group. They were the actual true experts of the law. They were the ones who copied the law. They hand-wrote each and every copy of the law that was in existence. And they went through this great and painstaking process and this ritual to really preserve the accuracy of the law. They had to verbalize each and every word aloud as they were writing it. They had to wipe off the pen. They had to wash their entire bodies before they ever wrote the word Jehovah. And they had to do that each and every time they wrote the word Jehovah. There had to be a thorough review of what they'd written within 30 days of when they wrote it. And if as many as three pages required any corrections, then the entire manuscript had to be redone. So they counted and checked each and every letter of each and every book of the entire Old Testament. They counted every word, they counted every letter, they counted every space between the letters in every book to ensure that none of them were lost. So surely the scribes took their job of preserving the scriptures very, very seriously. And in fact, on the one hand, we can thank the Jewish scribes 
for the, the preservation and really the accuracy of the Old Testament that we have in our Bibles today. Now, they had become what were called lawyers, but they were lawyers in the truest sense of the word. No offense to any lawyers who might be here, but they were experts not in man's law, they were experts in God's law, right? They were the experts of the Old Testament. So this was a man, this man who's coming to Jesus, this was a man who'd given his whole life to the study of the law and of the prophets, right? Everything from Genesis all the way to Malachi, right? All of the Old Testament as we know it and they knew it then so that anyone could come to him at any time and bring him a question from their own life to say, you know, what in the world does God's law say about this circumstance? You know, what am I to do here? And the scribe would be able to answer it not from his opinion, but right from the law of God. So this guy knew the Old Testament. He knew it backwards, forwards. He knew it inside out. They were often called the doctors of the law. And even the priests looked up to the scribes. They kind of really stood by themselves. So this man was an expert of experts. So here this respected man, this expert man, was sent in by this greater group of the Pharisees. And as Mark tells us here, he's heard the way that Jesus has easily answered that ridiculous riddle that the Sadducees had brought. And I have to believe that he wonders, maybe even with a little bit of sincerity, if he wonders that Jesus might just be the man to answer the question to answer the big question, the burning question, the central question, right? So the expert of experts is now about to ask the question of questions that has been debated by the Jews for centuries. And so he asks that question now of Jesus right at the end there of verse 28. It says that he asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now this would seem like a simple question, right? And yet it's not at all. First of all, because the word first doesn't mean first in the sense of the order of appearance, like it's not just the number one in the list. It means first in the sense of importance or significance or preeminence. And some of your translations probably already say which commandment is the most important of all. But then just to make things a little bit more complicated, when the scribe speaks of the commandments, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments like we would think of the Ten Commandments. What he's talking about is the 613 commandments which the Jews had extrapolated from the Ten Commandments and the whole of the Mosaic Law that th those came from. Right, so what these lawyers had done over the years as they studied the law and as they dissected the law, again, trying to just understand the law as it was so detailed for them, first in Exodus and then further in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? In their very legalistic looking at the law and at the scriptures, they had divided the entire law of Moses into what they saw as 248 positive injunctions and then 365 negative prohibitions. So there were 248 thou shalts and 365 thou shalt nots. Then what they concluded is that the 248 positive commands corresponded to the number of body parts that made up the human body and the 365 negative prohibitions corresponded to the 365 days of the year. So what all of it communicated was that a person needed to obey God every day of the year with every part of their body. Then they further noticed that in the original Ten Commandments, if you take them in their original language and you take the numerical value of each letter, it totals up to... 613 letters, the very same number of the commandments that they got out of the total commandments of Moses. So I bring all this up not because it's going to be on the midterm, but I bring it up simply to show you this is the kind of thing that they were doing 
absolutely out of their sincerity in a desperation to try to understand the heart of God, this is what they did with the word of God and with the commandments of God. These are the things that they mused upon. And as a result of all of that musing, the conclusion that they came to was that no person could ever hope to know and fully obey all of these 613 commandments. So just to make it a little bit easier, what the lawyers did is they divided the commandments into the heavy ones, which were important, and the light ones, which were unimportant. And what they taught it was that in some cases it was okay to disobey a light commandment in order to keep a heavy commandment. In other words, for example, it would be lawful to lie if that lie would save somebody's life. So for example, like Rahab's lie, had saved the spies. So they were always working, very sincerely working on all of this kind of stuff and they were categorizing. Their whole world was wrapped up in the study of the word. But what happened, as we can see, is that the more they got involved in it and discussed in it and categorized it and systematized in it, the more they messed with all of the really simple commands, the more complicated everything began or became. And this is even before they began to add all of their own interpretations and all of their own traditions around the law. So now you fast forward and ultimately by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they are looking at the law of Moses as this thing that is just so hopelessly complex that what they're looking for now is a starting point. They want to know what's the single greatest commandment in the entire law of Moses and then so that that would then be the grid upon which they could interpret and give weight to all of the rest of the commandments. Now, I will simply point out with no commentary, but... Isn't it ironic that these religious leaders, these lawyers, spent half their time expanding and complicating the law of God into this hopeless kind of complexity, and then as a result of it, they spent the other half of their time trying to simplify it again so that people could understand it. You can apply that to whatever you want to apply that to in your life. So they're asking, so Jesus, could you tell us, in your opinion, what is the single greatest commandment from the law? What is the thing by which we are to judge all of the other commandments in applying these scriptures to the nitty-gritty of our lives in this very, very fallen world? So this is really a very good question, isn't it? It's a good question that should probably still pique our interest. And we see here in verse 29 that Jesus is going to answer this question but he's going to answer it unlike he has answered any of the other questions. So unlike he has answered these ridiculous questions that were asked of him, right? this question was far from ridiculous, and we're going to see that Jesus is going to answer it without any hesitation whatsoever. And this is what he says in verse 29. <coughs> it says, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now, of course, Jesus wrote the law, so he would know exactly where the right answer was. Of all of the commandments, right, the most important, the epicenter, the thing that was at the very center of all of it, this is the thing that everything else feeds off of, and he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It is still the great confession of faith that even today, pious Jews recite this every morning and every evening. It's called the Shema, right? And that word Shema means hear. Right? This was what Israel was to hear, and it comes from the very first word in that confession. Hear, O Israel. And really, the Shema is beautiful in its entirety. This is what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. <clears throat> so given by Moses to the people, this was right kind of as they re reviewed the law and renewed the law before Moses died. This was this statement of faith. And not only do the Orthodox Jews still recite it daily, but as you've seen, they write it out they roll it up and they put it in their little mezuzahs, which are those small little elongated boxes that they fasten to their doorposts. They write it out and they put it in these phylacteries, which are those leather pouches that they wear right on their foreheads. And all of it in this legalistic, this very literal attempt at obedience to this command to keep the word always in the forefront of their minds. So once again, they had masterfully caught the details, but they'd missed out on the entire point. And what the point of this statement was, <coughs> this was God's heartfelt desire to be in a covenant with the people of Israel. And it so beautifully affirmed the nature of God and the oneness of God and the unity of God, <coughs> right? It is the great foundational statement of monotheism which is essential to who God was and, of course, who he still is. <coughs> this is God saying, look, you have one God, right? Not like all of the other nations with their multiplicity of gods. God says, I am one God, <coughs> and I want one thing from you, and this is what I want. I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he says, <coughs> somebody's getting me some water, I think, thanks. But <coughs> And he says, I want you to teach that to your children. So it's so simple, right? So very simple. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. <coughs> this is the essential answer to this question of all questions. So... By Jesus sort of summing this all up, right, placing the greatest importance on this as the commandment, what he's essentially saying for us <coughs> is that the first and greatest purpose of a person's life is to simply love God with all of our being, right? Heart, mind, soul, strength. Love God with everything that we are and with everything that we have or with the totality of our being. Now, why? Most simply because he loves us in the very same way. This is what the Apostle John said. <coughs> he said, we love him because he first loved us. Right? Simple. So very simple. And the truth is that we are the responders in this relationship. Our entire life is lived simply as a response to God's great love for us. This is why the Apostle Paul says this to the Ephesians. <coughs> he says, I pray <coughs> that you all might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Because it's God's great consuming love for us that drives him to command us to love him back in return in that very same wholehearted way. Because he knows that he is the only thing that's actually worthy of that kind of love from us. Right? So he is our creator, right? He's the one who designed us. He's the one who made us in his image so that we would have this capacity to connect with him. He knows that we are merely a shell of what we were created to be without that connection. Right? Think of it this way. We're the light bulb. He's the light socket. And our lives would be pretty dim unless we're plugged in. 
Right, so everything that we are finds its fulfillment in its fullest only when we've really fully submitted it to him. <coughs> so everything we are, our will, emotion, intellect, body, we were created to spend them on loving God. So what are the things in your heart, right? What's your main motivation for life? Well, loving God should be that main motivation, right? What's in your soul? Where do you go for, for your emotional fulfillment? Well, loving God should be what satisfies your soul. You think about the ways that you use your mind. You know, what do you study? What do you read? What do you memorize? What are the things that you meditate on? Well, loving God by studying him and pressing deeper and deeper into who he is, right? That's the way we show our love for him. How do you use your energy? Think about the things that make you tired. What is it that you, that you expend your strength on? Well, your work, your service to other, all of those things can be done with the aim of loving God. And all of it because he's worthy of our love. But wait, there's more, right? Because loving God isn't just about his worthiness, but loving God is really also about our holiness. You see, there's a net benefit that God designed into this equation, this whole kind of consuming devotion to God because it's our love for God that will keep us out of all kinds of trouble. Think about it. When the love of God is the filter that we use for every single decision in our lives, we automatically are going to become more sanctified. We're going to become more set apart. We're going to become more holy, right? When, when your love for God is what helps you to decide who to date or where to live, or how to work, your life is inherently going to become more godly. It's going to be holier. And from holiness springs wholeness or health. So your life is going to become healthier in, in a whole kind of a sense. And therefore, I would hesitate to even say it's going to be happier. So all of this is designed by the God who designed us because the very best version of life is the life that is submitted back to him. And God knows that. Right? He knew it from the beginning. He knows that if we love him more than anyone or anything, and if we love him even more than ourselves, we're going to end up in a healthy spot. So his command for us to love him flows from his love for us. He knows what's best for us, and what's best for us comes into us when we love him. But here's the darker side to that same coin, right? If our love for the Lord is not first above all of those other things in our life that we love, if he isn't the first thing in our life, then our life is inevitably going to be ordered incorrectly. Right? If he isn't the foundation, if the foundation is off, then the house of your life will eventually crumble. Because what that does is it sets off a sort of this kind of a chain reaction of missteps that will eventually lead to our ruin. Or, if I could just put it a little more plainly, the sin of not putting God first will breed a multitude of other sins in our lives. And these are the things that destroy us from the inside out. Now, I need you to stay with me on this part because I once heard this compared and I think it was super helpful. But I heard this whole concept compared to when the rebel forces in Star Wars destroyed the Death Star. Okay, now stay with me on this one. But you remember, remember they got those plans of the Death Star. Help me, Obi-Wan, right? You're my only hope. And it revealed that there was that one little hatch on the outside which, read, which led directly inside to the core of the Death Star, right to the heart of the Death Star. So much so that when Luke Skywalker, right, with one direct hit from his little X-Wing fighter, straight down into the hatch, it went right down to the core, and it set off this series of explosions that destroyed that seemingly impenetrable colossus from the inside out. Now, 
if you're not following yet, so this is a bad illustration and it's a really good one. It's a bad one because you're not Luke Skywalker, okay? You're the Death Star, okay? It's a good one though because your enemy is constantly trying to blast away at your love for God which is at the heart of who you really are because he knows that that is where we are specially vulnerable to attack. And he knows that without that love for the Lord, he can get us to commit all kinds of egregious sins. But it's the love of the Lord that we have that preserves us from that chain reaction of errors that destroys us from within. And this is the way that our faith works, right? Our love for God protects us at the very core of who we are. And, and all of this is to help us understand Christianity is so much more than just a bunch of rules and regulations, right? Have you ever heard people say that like, oh, you know, I tried Christianity, but it was just a bunch of rules. Now, there are people who do arrive at that conclusion, but most likely, in my opinion, they come to that conclusion because they really never understood the gospel. And they come to that conclusion because they really never understood God's grace because when you get the gospel and when you get God's grace you understand what God has done for you you cannot help but respond in love to him again the Christian life is all about our response to the love of God right again we love because he first loved us why do you think all of the epistles, or at least most all of the epistles, they're laid out the way that they are? You've got all the doctrine, you've got all the teaching, you've got all of this revelation about the things that God has done for us, usually chapter after chapter of this wonderful stuff, and all of that stuff comes where? It comes at the front end. And then what we need to do in response to all of what God has done it comes in on the back end, right? We got three chapters of what God has done followed by a couple chapters of what we're supposed to do. And so many Christians, they wanna know, you know, just tell me what to do, just tell me how to live. But the thing is that you won't have the motivation to do it unless you're continually meditating on what God has done. Now this may not surprise you, but I get more than my share of criticism that I focus too much on God's grace and God's love, right? People say, you know, you need to tell us what we're doing wrong. You need to tell us how to do it right. You need to tell us to be holy and you need to tell us to stop sinning. So, okay, for you people, be holy and stop sinning for goodness sake. Okay, I did it. And then they say, well, how do we do that, right? And I say, well, you do that by understanding God's love and by understanding God's grace. And they say, okay, well, then teach us more about that, right? Here's the truth, you guys. I don't need to tell you what you're doing wrong because the truth is you already know it, don't you? What we need is we need to understand the motivation to do right. And it's right here. It's because God loves us. And so we want to love him above everything else. We want to love him with everything we have, heart, mind, soul, strength, just as Jesus says that we should. And this is what loving God can do for a life like that. It shifts our entire perspective on life. Because when your love for God is the first thing in your life, it really reorients everything about your life in, and it does it in a really super practical way. And what I mean by that is your long nasty commute becomes a chance to listen to teaching about his word, you know, so that you can love him more with your mind. Right? That walk you need to do because your doctor said you have to, well, it just becomes a chance to pray and to really love the Lord with all your soul. Every work shift that you show up to, it becomes a chance to demonstrate the worth ethic of Jesus and to demonstrate the love of God as you love him with all of your strength. Every friendship you have turns into an opportunity to see God's image in another person. 
And all of it comes alive because of this love for God. Because all of this now leads us into the next thing that Jesus says. Because in verse 31, he's going to go on and he's going to give them the rest of the story. He's just given them what they asked for. Right? He gave them that first and the greatest commandment, love God even ahead of yourself. And the second, he says, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So notice what Jesus does. He goes on and he throws in what he says is the second greatest commandment. And he does it without even being asked. This is kind of a bonus answer, isn't it? Well, we're going to see it's a bonus, but a very connected answer. Now, I'm going to shock some of you when I tell you that when Jesus gave this wonderful sort of New Testament sounding love everybody kind of an answer, do you know where he got it? <coughs> he got it right out of Leviticus chapter 19. Right, you should not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he has gotten these two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor, he's gotten them from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which I point out only to say, so much for the Old Testament being some sort of obsolete violent, dangerous book with terrible morals, as some of its critics would point out, and try to get us to somehow unhitch our Christianity from it. Not in the least. Right? The Old Testament, for everything from Genesis to Malachi, it is so refreshing. It is so good. It is so God-centered rather than being man-centered. The Old Testament is page after page. It is story after story revealing the redemptive heart of God as he pursues people because of his love for people and his deep desire to be in real relationship with them. And that's why we love and read and study the Old Testament. Okay, commercial over. Now, a question, that's why you should come to the 30 days in the Bible. No, okay. Here's a question we could ask. Why would Jesus even throw in this second commandment? Right? They only asked for one, and yet he gives them two. Now, there could be a couple of reasons. One of the reasons I think that he gave them a second commandment, remember, here he is in front of what is predominantly a religious crowd. Probably 95% of that crowd there that day would have agreed with his answer that the single most important commandment in all the law of Moses was to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, right? So, in a sense, I think there's a chance that he might even anticipate that they're going to have a second question, like, oh yeah, we mean, you know, after that one. Everybody knows that one, Jesus. What's the one after that? Now, more significantly, I think that he offers up the second commandment because it is so intimately connected with the first commandment because one of the very best ways that God has given us to express our love for him is in loving our neighbors the, the simple fact of the matter is no one can come to love God personally and deeply without also developing a love for our fellow man no doubt they can frustrate the daylights out of us at times and I know because I know I can do more than my share of the frustrating probably for a lot of the people in this room. But to come to know God and to continue to grow in God is to become more like God. And guess what? God happens to love people. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because there's kind of this myth that sometimes Christians believe that I can just love God but I don't really have to like these other people. I can just love God, but I can even you know, hate some people or, or treat people poorly. Guess what? That's just not the case at all. Our love for God is going to lead to a love for the people that are made in the image of God, and loving others is a way for us to love God. God loves it when we love others. 
And so we need to extend ourselves to do it. Again, this is how John said it. He said, this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. In other words, you can't love the invisible God who you can't see without also loving these visible people who are standing right in front of you. And so the person that refuses to love others clearly hasn't really interacted with God on a deep and a personal level. So why did Jesus give this second one? Well, primarily, again, nobody understood the essence of the law like the one who gave it, Jesus, right? So instead of sort of promoting one commandment over another, he defined the entire law, right? Here's the essence of these 613 commandments, and he rolls it into these two core principles that we're to love the Lord with everything we have, and we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And in doing this, you Bible students have already seen it, right? What he just did is he encapsulated all of the Ten Commandments, Right? Love God, that's the whole first tablet of the law. And love people is the whole second tablet of the law. And what Jesus has shown us is that the one very naturally leads to the other. In other words, the first and second commandments are inextricably linked together. They flow one right out of the other. It's because we love God that we will naturally that love for people will flow from us. We just can't help it. But here's the problem. Most all of us have become experts in separating the two because we live these increasingly highly compartmentalized kind of lives. And it's what I like to call TV dinner spirituality. Right, you guys remember an old school TV dinner. Remember how the Salisbury steak and the peas and the mashed potatoes and that gooey, ooey, wonderful peach cobbler, right? But remember how they're all in their separate little compartments, right? And that's exactly what we do spiritually. And then that's how we treat people relationally. We say, oh, you know, I love the Lord. I'm going to worship. It's Sunday morning. And yet by Monday morning, we're already complaining about and we're critical of our work team members behind their backs. And then by Wednesday, we're all whipped up at how the neighbor's too noisy early in the morning. And then on Sunday though, right, we're right back wholeheartedly worship. Oh, praise the Lord, brother, Jesus, you know, I surrender all, Lord, take all of me, right? At least take me till tomorrow when I have to deal with these knuckleheads again. Right, what we've just compartmentalized our lives thinking that the way that we can treat other people really has no bearing on our relationship with, the, with God when it's actually, it is a reflection of that relationship. So being as honest as I can, if you're not very nice to people, I'm thinking there's something wrong with your relationship with the Lord. So Jesus says that our walk with God isn't like a TV dinner Right? If we love God, we will inevitably love people and our whole lives will become more, if you will, not like a TV dinner, but like a big old chicken pot pie. Right? It, where things aren't all stuck in their little compartments, but where all the peas and the potatoes and the chicken, it's all just mushed up and mashed up together. That's how we're supposed to love people. And who doesn't love chicken pot pie, right? That the point is, if our love is genuine, it's naturally going to flow into a love for other people. And what that means, right, this is where the rubber meets the road, guy. If you were looking for a loophole in this, what this means is that we're to love the people that we actually meet and that we deal with each and every day. Right? It's too easy to love people in a theoretical sense or in an abstract sense. Right? God demands, he commands that we love real live people. It's easy to say, oh, you know, I love everybody. I have a heart for, for the world, right? But I'm sure each one of us, think it through right now, each one of us could make a list of the 50 people who we know and we come in contact with on a daily or a weekly basis, 
right? People maybe from school or from work or from the neighborhood, right? And I would say that at least 40 of those 50 people can be a little bit hard to love sometimes, right? And I would also say that maybe 10 of those 40 people, they would fall into the really hard to love category. And that there are times when it gets harder to love, maybe the closer to home that we get. Well, guess what? Those are all the very real people that the Lord really calls on us to really love. Why? Because he loves you. And you are probably one of the 10 on his list. Right? I know I'm one of the 10 on his list that's really hard to love. But he loves me anyway. And he loved me and he loved you even when we were at our very worst. Right? God demonstrates his own love towards us in that when? After we cleaned up our act? No. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the next time that loving somebody seems like kind of a tall order, think of the cross. Right? Think of the sacrifice. Think of what Jesus endured in my place. Think of the righteousness that was then given to me from him. And I think that when we can internalize this and really absorb it on a personal level, everybody around us starts to look different to us because who am I to look down on anybody else or harbor any kind of ill will against them, right? Grace received becomes grace bestowed or grace extended. And those of us who have been forgiven so much, we should understand that much better how to forgive others. When we realize what we were, what he's done, right? When, as Paul says in Romans, he says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And right there, you guys, that verse, that's the secret sauce. That's what makes it possible for us to truly love those who are around us because he is the power that makes it possible. Right? We can never just do it because we were commanded to do it. Loving people in the way that God commands us to love them is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as he then pours out of our lives. So it's really so simple. It always has been, right? Love God, love people, but notice quickly, Jesus says, not only are we to love them, that would have been hard enough, right? But he tells us the degree to which we are to love our neighbor. What does he say? As ourselves. In other words, we're supposed to love our neighbor just the way that we already love ourselves. That means really to be able to look at another person in life and to look at them with that same kind of interest and understanding and care and concern that we take when we look at ourselves. That's a lot, right? That's a lot of interest. It's a lot of understanding. It's a lot of care. It's a lot of concern the way we treat ourselves. And God wants us to see other people in that same way. And it's not really that hard. Again, it's simply to look at a person and whatever circumstance they are in and then just ask yourself, if I were in that same circumstance, what would I want someone to do for me? How would I want them to care for me? And then do that thing for that person. Right, to look at somebody in this situation and say, okay, if I were in that exact same situation, what would I want someone to say to me? And then say that thing to that person in that situation or, or do that thing for that person. You know, it can be a word of encouragement. It might be a quick text message just to let them know that you're praying for them and that you're concerned about them. Maybe it's even a phone call, right? Do people still make phone calls anymore, right? Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's even a handwritten note. Maybe it is a bag of groceries or a gift card or it's giving a ride home from a doctor's appointment. Maybe it's just a hug. 
or just a listening ear, right? It can look like so many different things. But any of these things, it's something that not only conveys our love because it came from us, because we love them, but each and every one of those things conveys God's love because it flowed out of our love for him. And it can be such a beautiful way to communicate that on so many levels as we just love them the way that we would choose to have someone love us in that very same situation. And when we can start to do this, it's like God just infiltrates our each and every day experience through us loving others the way that he loves us. Every relationship we have, everything that we do just suddenly becomes alive. It's like God breathes new life into those things. Again, then your work starts to just become an opportunity for you to love God and for you to love people. Every interaction you have with a coworker is just now it's an outlet for you to express your devotion to Jesus. You'll see your marriage starts to yield to his leadership. Your families become healthier. Friendships just gain depth. Churches become more fruitful. And the love of God just invades everything and it impacts each and every interaction and every decision in life. It, it makes our lives full. It's almost like living lives now for the very first time finally in full color. It's like we've moved from Kansas over to Oz. Right? Okay, yet another sort of a stupid illustration, right? Two in one day and two from movies, right? First we got Star Wars, now we got The Wizard of Oz, and we've got chicken pot pie thrown right in the middle of the whole mess. But it makes the point, right? Because we live our lives in the gray scale like those opening scenes in, in Kansas until this absolute tornado of God's love just lifts us up and pulls us out of that and drops us into this full technicolor where we are living life now saturated in the love of God. Now you guys see why I don't use more illustrations, right? Because I'm not very good at them. But we can let the Apostle Paul sum it up or, or maybe he'll clean it up for us. He says this in Romans 13, very simply, he says that love is the fulfillment of the law. So Jesus just gave this expert in the law a crash course in really what was the whole heart behind it. He's giving him, given him nothing less than the essence of life as it was intended to be lived, right? So he's given them this essential answer and this bonus connected answer. And in the rest of the passage, just a few verses that remain, we're gonna see this guy's response to what Jesus said, and it is a great one. So the scribe said to him in verse 32, well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now this is truly a wonderful verse. And it's a wonderful answer that comes from this man because what it shows is that the dawn was beginning to break in his heart. So I think that this is a, an enlightened and a very encouraging answer to this essential and these bonus answers that Jesus had given him. When he had come to Jesus at the beginning of our text, he had come, again, I think, as a tool of the Pharisees as they're trying to entrap Jesus and to discredit him. But then as he was listening to Jesus, as he was hearing the word of God explained to him by the word of God, now the spirit of God is starting to speak to his heart and he's just starting now to get this deeper understanding both of the faith and of the scriptures that he thought he understood. And he's coming to realize that even these texts that he had devoted his life to the study of, right, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all of these different Old Testament texts had clearly communicated that there was more at the heart of the Jewish religion than offering sacrifices and keeping laws. 
And then I have to believe that the scriptures are just spinning and running through his mind. Like where Samuel said, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. King David, right after he sinned and been brought back to repentance, in Psalm 51, he said, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Understand in David's case, there was no sacrifice you could offer for adultery. There was no sacrifice you could offer for murder, right? That was a death sentence, right? A double death sentence. And yet David understood that a broken and a contrite heart, a spirit, you will not despise. You think about Isaiah chapter 1, and, and here's what God essentially says. He says, okay, I'm going to speak now to Jerusalem. I'm going to speak now to Sodom. I'm going to speak to you people of Gomorrah. And he goes on to say, look, all this religious stuff, all the feasts, all the sacrifices, I don't want any of that. It's making me sick. And then he says, calling them back into relationship, this is where he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They're, though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And you look through all this process of what's being said in the Old Testament, Hosea, Micah, all of it, God just keeps saying all of that stuff doesn't mean anything. And I believe that all of these scriptures now are starting to come to life in the heart of this man. For the very first time, these things are leaping off the page to him. And here now, he's standing there. He has the love of God manifest in bodily form right there in the person of Jesus Christ. And this scribe is starting to understand that there's a reality here. Think about the scene. Here he stands in front of this huge capacity crowd in the temple courts. Right here he stands with these Pharisees who were the ones who'd sent him in. Here he stands in the temple courts face to face with Jehovah God in human skin. The whole time the smoke of the sacrifices are rising around them and he is realizing for the very first time that a love relationship with the Lord and with others was so much more important than this legalistic religion that was expressed in all of the ritual and all of the ceremonial law that he was an expert in. That a love relationship was the true expression of God's heart. That was what was at the epicenter of what God wants from his people. He couldn't argue with the beauty and the simplicity of Jesus' answer. And look at our very final verse. It says, now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, it says, no one dared question him. So this was the end of the attacks against Jesus. This was the end of his oral exams. He's now passed them all with flying colors. His enemies had just sent their best, and the net result was that this scribe, we can only hope, made a decision to follow Jesus. The text doesn't tell us for sure, but I certainly hope that we will see this man in heaven one day. So what does it mean when Jesus says that a person is not far from the kingdom of God. And I want to close with this because that may be some of you sitting here this morning. What it means is that this is a person who is starting to understand. This is a person who is starting to test what they believed or what they once thought they believed and they're bringing the word of God to bear upon those beliefs and they're starting to see that perhaps they were wrong. They're starting to understand, finally, the heart of God. They're starting to understand the love of God. But you all know the expression, close only counts in horseshoes, right? And being close to the kingdom is not the same thing as entering into the kingdom. And with all of the great appreciation that this guy had of the teaching of Jesus, this man was still standing just outside the door of the kingdom. And to step in, he needed to trust in Jesus and to commit to follow after Jesus for himself. Right, to trust him as savior and to follow him as Lord. 
and then just simply watch as those two great commandments, right, as the very essence of life itself started to take shape and become alive in his heart and in his life just in the very same way that we pray that they will take shape and come to life in our lives even this morning. Right, where we're living out our lives in this full technicolor, right, like the Wizard of Oz, or where we're avoiding the danger of being destroyed from within like the Death Star, right? And where we're really just walking around and we are loving people like what? Like chicken pot pie. Amen. God bless you guys. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for this text, Lord, and we thank you for the insight that you provide to us, Lord, on what, um, what your heart really is for us, Lord, as you just break down what is the essence of not just your law, Lord, but the essence of life itself. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help to write these truths on our hearts, Lord. Give us understanding, Lord. I pray that we would um, just be open as the Spirit searches those area in our, in our lives where we're not completely submitted to you, Lord, where we still have things kind of compartmentalized. Lord, we want to we wanna lay it all out before you, Lord, and we want you to, to have um, just authority over all of it. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's, uh, let's worship the Lord.